Finally, a podcast about civics education said no one ever until now. This is the Civics Factor, exploring what democracies need to actually solve our problems. This is the Civics Factor, and this is your host, Mark McGinnis. Welcome to the Civics Factor, the podcast about civic literacy and the podcast where the starting place for democratic reform is that we are fucked. And the point of it is to unfuck ourselves. So it's good to know about literacy, the things about how politics works and doesn't work, as well as all the things that goes into it, our engagement, our attitudes towards politicians, our attitudes towards one another, the tribes we belong to, the individuals we are, our opinions, how fallible they can be, and the humility we need to evolve those opinions. We also need to know about the things that keep us from engagement. So that's why I'm happy our guest today, Alona Doherty. Alona is currently the Managing Director of the Youth and Innovation Project at the University of Waterloo. She's an award-winning social innovator and a regular in Canadian media, advising business, civil society, and government on how they can best tap and leverage the value and unique abilities of young people. This work in academia is buttressed by a career that included co-founding the national nonpartisan social enterprise, Apathy is Boring. Alona, thank you for being here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Part of the uh, part of the the communication marketing materials for Apathy is Boring is that it was, uh, I guess, discovered or or thought up in a party in 2004 between a choreographer, a filmmaker, and a fashion photographer. Now, other than being the setup to a boring joke, what's your experience been since then? Like, how many other national initiatives were started as like a drunk conversation or something at a party? Well, I think. I think any any good initiative has to start with a bit of fun, um, you know, especially when we're dealing with challenging topics like democracy and really serious stuff. We also need to remember um, to keep things light. And so I think that is the actual true story of how Apathy is Boring was founded, um, that myself and the two other co-founders, co Mackenzie Duncan and Paul Shore, um, well, Mac Mackenzie and I were, were childhood friends, but uh, we met Paul at a party and just started talking about Canadian democracy and, uh, and 16 years later, <laughs> uh, Apathy is Warring is still going strong. So, so yeah, so I think it, it's kind of, a, it was, um, that story is sort of a little bit cheeky, uh, but I think it really represents um, certainly my perspective about how we need to approach these issues, which is with a little bit of uh, humility and recognizing that we don't have all the answers, but willingness to just go for it anyway. Um, what do you recall being activated at the time? Like, was there particular issues that you go, wow, we really got to do something about democracy specifically and this topic of engagement and apathy specifically? Sure. So I'm really going to, you know, date myself by telling you <laughs> what issues I was involved in at that I point. forgot that could be a real leading question. Yeah, yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, but that's okay. Um, I'm not ashamed of my age. Um, so at that point I had, so I'd been really involved in environmental issues um, growing up as a teenager um, in, in Whitehorse, Yukon, where I spent my teenage years. Um, and so those were, those were the issues that were really, um, kind of driving me and very much of interest, but I was always, I always, I think, saw it from an environmental justice kind of lens. Um, so was involved in kind of early conversations about climate change, but at that point, 
right before I found it out to be as boring, I was very engaged in the anti-globalization movement. So there was the, the battle in Seattle <laughs> against the World Trade Organization. And so really looking at global issues and how different, you know, and the thing that was really incredible about that movement was like unions and environmentalists, like all these disparate groups that don't normally talk to, get, to each other were coming together. And so that was really kind of the, the context in which uh, I found it after these boring was having come, you know, growing up in this incredible movement where all sorts of different people were talking to each other. Um, and, but at the same time, recognizing that a lot of my peers who were protesting and so actively engaged in these issues, like, you know, in the streets weren't also engaging in politics and just rec recognizing the disconnect and the problem with that and the fact that those voices. Well, that makes me think, uh, you know, further to uh, maybe what some other research says that people care more about issues than they do about politics in general. Maybe going back to the, you know, the stereotype of the debate team kids, those are people that love argumentation and love arguing and love trying to like win that that's their sports. That's like sad white kid sports is like debate team stuff. And just again, horrible stereotypes, but, um, people care about issues and they're drawn to it. And so politics kind of becomes this gate or barrier to action about an issue. Does that, does that sort of reflect your, your experience? I mean, it, it can, but it's also another tool in the toolbox, you know, and I think that's honestly what my work has really been about over the last 20 years that I've been doing this um, is, is recognizing that sometimes protest is the right tool to use um, sometimes, you know, you're making own, your own individual choices in your life, about what you're going to buy or how you're going to live is the right tool, but sometimes politics is the right tool. And, and our research at the University of Waterloo has, uh, with the Youth and Innovation Project, has actually backed it up that often young people make the most change when they actively engage uh, within the system. So again, not being co-opted by the system, but being willing to engage with decision makers. I do want to circle back to that uh, co-opted uh, element. Um, maybe I guess to, to start talking about apathy is boring and, and apathy generally, like how would you describe or define apathy? So, I mean, I, I think apathy um, is often defined as not caring, you know, and I think that's, that's kind of accurate accurate. However, I think the kind of apathy that certainly we were trying to address was a, um, a sense of disengagement. So beyond kind of not caring, um, having been given reasons not to care, you know, so really the sense that like, it's not worth caring. Um, and my voice, like, it just doesn't matter even if I do care. Um, so yeah, that's, I think, how we really defined it. I, I, I think a large part of the cynicism about um, uh, civic engagement and, and about uh, specifically my own project here, civic literacy and civic education, right? Like I, I wanna see it reformed. I wanna see that dynamic improve so that people understood the value of being engaged and becoming informed and also in having the tools to become better informed uh, and analyze the, the sources of, of information that they can sometimes be bombarded with some of the cynicism that I would receive is, well, do you think civic education alone would change things? So do you, do you see like the, the antidote to apathy being engagement? Do you think that alone changes things? 
So I think it's really important to separate civic education and kind of learning about democracy from meaningful engagement um, or even dialogue. Like I think those are different things and I, I think it's important to, to kind of speak about those things differently or separately. Um, so the research is pretty clear that just civic education in the sense of sitting in a classroom and learning about parliamentary democracy does basically nothing <laughs> to fix um, to fix uh, you know disengagement or young people not voting. What the research is is also clear about is as soon as there's a measure of engagement, right? So um, even things like student vote, there's an organization called Civics that runs a mock election in schools across the country. Um, and even that kind of level of engagement, right? So, so not you're not actually getting to vote, but you're getting to kind of participate in a mock election. So your vote doesn't count in the real election, but but at least you're you're kind of doing a simulation of that. Um, that makes more of a difference. But again, with our research at the University of Waterloo, what we've started to to establish and are continuing to work to establish is that when young people have an opportunity to really make an impact in their communities and feel like their voice matters on an issue, that's what leads to meaningful engagement. So, so civic education, um, I don't have a lot of time for. Yes, we all need the basics, um, but what we really need is to be learning and then having opportunities to meaningfully contribute. Um, and what we need to do is create spaces for dialogue. I love it. I'm a big believer that education should be more uh, hands-on learning while doing, that kind of maybe even Montessori model of things. And I don't think our current education system is going to be the thing that saves us or the thing that even improves. Like it, it's just a, it's an outmoded model. It, it was made for the industrial revolution and, uh, and we kind of, continue treating it that way, putting kids on one end of the assembly line, they come out on the other, but we miss certain things and we also prepare them for the wrong things, um, which leads to maybe, you know, politics being treated like a consumer, a consumer affair. Voting is a consumer affair. You're, you're shopping for the, the party. You are, you know, taking to different political parties like they're a sports team and they should definitely not be looked at that way. But part of the learning while doing, I think will be really helpful is reframing civics as a group problem solving in that we are each as individuals trying to figure out problems and, and we, you know, will sometimes be equipped with those skills at schools. Um, but it's, it's a different thing entirely to have to come together with people who see things a different way, have different toolkits and how they diagnose problems and how they like break down the world around them and analyze things. And then you have to figure out a solution over like a choice over a common a resource, like a, over a common pot of gold that you now have to divvy up and go, here's our shared priorities, here's our common interests, and just things like that. So I, I fully advocate, uh, you know, dropping kids off on a tropical island like Lord of the Flies, and then seeing if they make it like, <laughs> like something where you really got to group problem solve. And, um, and I say that kind of like, cheekily about the, yeah. the Lord of the Flies, because every time that's happened in history, almost always young people a bit like almost always people will figure it out. They yeah. self-organize. And, and so like, it's a check on my cynicism too, because I do have, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, exactly that, that cynicism about 
the abilities of people, but like you put them under stress, they can do some really good things and it actually boosts faith and optimism in it. I want to take a moment and talk to you about opinions. I want to let you know that it is okay to change your opinions without having to change your identity. Because what is an opinion? An opinion is like a snapshot in time of the judgment you had with the information you had at the time. And it's okay to change your opinions if you've been confronted, even by people you don't like, with information that supersedes the information you had when you made that opinion, when you formed that opinion. As responsible citizens in a constructive democracy, we have to accept that nobody has a monopoly on the truth or the evidence. And if we can have that humility in understanding what an opinion is, then we can change our opinions without it being such a hit to our egos. And maybe if we did that, we wouldn't have so much political deadlock in our countries. And if we did that, maybe our politics would be more constructive than what it is now. You know, there's that line that opinions are like everyone's got one. Well, opinions are like everyone's got one. And it's our responsibility to make sure we don't have a one. Which is why I'm happy to announce my partnership with Tushy, the makers of a bidet attachment for your toilet. Say goodbye to toilet paper. Say goodbye to hemorrhoids. Bidets are the future, especially when toilet paper supplies are running direly low for no good reason. Be civilized. Get a tushy. Don't use wet wipes. They're terrible for the environment. Get a tushy. Go to hellotushy.com slash civicsfactor and get 10% off your order. That's hellotushy.com slash civicsfactor and get 10% off your order. You're listening to The Civics Factor with Mark McGinnis. Do you recall having some like great disappointments or moments where you felt naive within Apathy is Born? Hmm, good question. Um, I mean, I think, um, honestly, some of my biggest frustrations at the beginning of, of Apathy is Boring were, um, were really about being a woman in, in the political sphere. So when I started, you know, Apathy is Boring, and so, and just for context, my two co-founders, Paul and Mackenzie, worked part-time on the project, and I was the full-time executive director from the beginning. Um, I was the only woman leading a compare, you know, a, a democratic engagement organization um, at that time in, in the country. And there were like many of them. Um, I think one of our first coalitions, we had like, there were 25 organizations doing similar work around get out the vote. Um, and there was this, you know, there was certainly, and it's funny because I, I live in Toronto now and have it, but having grown up and lived in pretty well uh, every other part of Canada, I think I can say, say this, there was a very Toronto-centric nature, you know, of, of all those organizations. I was the only one not living and, you know, organization not being based in Toronto, and it was all men. And it was all men who thought they knew everything. Um, and that was really frustrating and hard because kind of no one took me seriously. And I was 23 years old. And, um, and I just, you know, I kind of saw people taking these other organizations and these men way more seriously than they were taking me. Um, and that was really frustrating. Um, but of course now, you know, 16 years later, there's three organizations <laughs> nationally, you know, doing this work that are pretty established and Apathy is Worrying is one of them. So I showed that, so there. But that was, you know, so just not being taken seriously was definitely a frustration and a challenge. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about who to trust. And I think I kind of learned the hard way. Um, I, I definitely am the kind of person who just assumes that everybody's kind of good <laughs> and everybody's well-intentioned and shocking newsflash in politics. That's not always the way it is. Um, so I think that was a tough lesson, but I also learned that there are good people, um, you know, that I, I found good people in surprising places, I guess, as well. Um, so yeah, so I mean, the hard things about running an NGO are fundraising, um, at 23, learning how to manage a team, um, you know, and then the tough realities when the fundraising doesn't work out. Um, and those were certainly some of the, the toughest lessons that I ever, ever learned. Wow. Yeah. Did you have uh, experiences maybe with the, the political system? Like, were you engaging much with politicians or parties and did they ever promise anything they, they either delivered or didn't? Um, so, uh, Yes, we engaged a lot with folks from all across the different, like the political spectrum, um, which in the Canadian, like, I think it's important for me to say this in the Canadian context, although it's changing now, like I, I think it's tougher now to engage with the right. <laughs> um, I mean, certainly in the US, but in Canada, it's becoming tougher as well. Um, just given that um, I think basic human rights are not necessarily respected across the political spectrum in the way that when I was starting Apathy is Boring, um, you know, 16 years ago, I think they were. Um, so we really actively engaged across the political spectrum um, with all the major political parties and honestly had a really great experience. Um, and, and felt as though there was an opportunity for access and meaningful dialogue um, kind of all, all across. I would say, what's, what's the most frustrating thing? So, I mean, the interesting thing was because Apathy is Boring is nonpartisan, we weren't really asking them for very much. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it, we were, we were um, yeah, we weren't really asking them for very much. It was often actually that they would ask us for stuff, <laughs> wanting us to, to kind of say, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, aren't we doing a great job on youth engagement? Like that was, it was more, it was kind of a mutual, like they recognized our value. They want that um, bullet on their brochure. Yeah, yeah. And so, so honestly, I, I did not, I was fortunate not to have an experience where I felt, felt let down um, by political parties. Certainly, Apathy is Boring though at one point was, um, uh, the, the subject of a back and forth in parliament, um, which was terrifying. <laughs> you know? and there, was, there was a couple of times where we were like, please don't pay attention to us. Like, why are you using us for this? What, what was that about? Oh my goodness. I'd, I'd have to pull up old emails to remind myself, but it was, um, we, oh my goodness. I'll try to remember, you know what? I'll try to remember exactly what it was about, but it was basically, it was between the NDP and the conservatives being like, you know, basically saying how, oh, I don't remember exactly, but it was, it was a significant back and forth. And let me tell you, it caused a lot of stress to be like, why are you talking about us? But I think we were in the news and, you know, somehow it was to everybody's advantage to talk about us. 
that's good yeah i mean no you know all press is good press maybe Uh, it was it was a little bit uh stressful Yeah. yeah yeah um Maybe speaking more generally about uh, apathy here, what are some of the other stressors or, or factors that would lead someone to tune out? That is a good question. So I think um, I think fundamentally it's a question of having one's basic life needs met. Um, so you know, I grew up in northern Saskatchewan, the Yukon, and really saw firsthand the realities of of young people in Canada's north and also um, the context of young people in, you know, from Indigenous communities. Um, And often a sense of hopelessness or a sense of like recognizing how little one's voice is, um, you know, respected or valued, but also just being super busy with trying to like just do life. Um, you know, those I think are some of the fundamental reasons for disengagement. Um, and I think those are ones that we need to address. Uh, I think honestly, you know, you had talked about how education doesn't work and I would firmly agree, even though I work at a university and that gets a little awkward occasionally. Um, education encourages young people to be passive right? You sit in the back of the room, you don't really know what you're talking about, and the teacher is going to fill you with knowledge. So how can we expect then that a young person turns 18 and magically feels a sense of agency? Like that it doesn't logically make sense when we've spent the first 18 years of their lives training them to be passive. And arguably, I would argue we now we expect young people to stay passive a lot longer. So I think fundamentally, um, that's one of the big issues that that causes this dynamic. Yeah, I, I think I talked about that with uh, was uh, Dr. Joel Westheimer um, about this kind of like economic model of of I guess uh, education. Like if you're going to go for to school, it's so expensive now that you have to get something that's going to be worth it. That's going to like you know have a return on investment. Yeah. So that automatically now caters you towards like less humanities. Or, or gears you towards less humanities and more like, you know, business and STEM and, and, you know, going into finance and real estate. And it's like, now we're kind of moving away from, and we don't necessarily mean to, it's just how like the consequence of the system that we've created and the economy, it's, it's created sort of a consumer's mindset. Um, so when you do see people starting to engage in, in politics, I think the starting place has been broken because we didn't do enough to prepare them uh, for the group problem solving. So people do come at it from like, well, which which political party do I want to belong to? Which sports team do I want to get behind? And then they start, you know, engaging with the debate team people and started getting uh, enculturated into uh, a, a culture that is a partisan to a fault. And I think that that part could be, you know, better uh, addressed. And that's why, like, you know, apathy is boring. It's going for something that isn't partisan and necessarily it's about engagement um, and what engagement does for for people communities individuals in general it's uh, well documented but i i think it's also we have to have some kind of starting place that isn't immediately partisan that isn't this big daunting thing that's a giant institution that just kind of shuts down people because it, it, it's so massive and then when you look at politics generally 
what you're going to get is from the news and that national news is going to be about scandals. It's going to be about the things that kind of like bring in the news and, and issues. And those seem so far away and so like giant that you just, you know, to try and get involved at any level, it, it feels so disincentivized here. How has, uh, like what, what, is, what is maybe your personally experience with burnout and jaded cynicism? Certainly. Um, so I definitely have had a lot of experience with burnout uh, personally. So that was, I mean, that when, when I left up these boring, um, so I was executive director for 10 years. Um, I was extremely burnt out um, and it took literally years for me to recover from a, you know, kind of personal burnout Um I think I really kind of took the whole world on my shoulders and really assumed that I had to kind of fix everything, um, which I think is problematic. That sort of hero model where it's like, um, you know, yeah, we're all here to solve and fix uh, is not a great model. And I don't think it does necessarily good things for community. And it also does not do good things for the individuals um, who, who, uh, you know, are, are trying to magically solve all the world's problems. I think, you know, in retrospect, certainly one of my regrets is having, you know, I had about 60 young people who worked with, with me at Apathy's Boring over the 10 years I was executive director. And I wish that, um, I think I was more understanding and supportive of their kind of the fact that, you know, them as whole people than I was of myself. However, I wish that there had been more of a culture of well-being um, and kind of bringing our whole selves to work and recognizing the limits of being human. Um, I wish that's something I had understood at that point in my life, and I certainly don't think I did. Um, I was very fortunate more recently to be part of a project called the Wellbeing Project, which is a global project that looks at the intersection of personal well-being and social change. Um, and really recognizes that uh, people who are doing social change work need to be well in order to do that work in a way that um, that isn't simply reenacting trauma that they've experienced in their lives on the communities they say that they're trying to support. Um, so I've certainly shifted both how I do my work, how I live my life, um, and also how I support the, the young people I now work with uh, at the University of Waterloo, I've really sh shifted that. Um, but yeah, as soon as you get burnt out, it's very easy to be cynical. I think I'm, I also have a kind of cynical, um, slightly snarky nature <laughs> as, a, as a human. Um, and so I think that's good, right? Like I think, I think being, being cynical sometimes can be a, a good thing and a fun thing, but, um, but certainly I am glad to not be burnt out at this point in my life. And I'm certainly grateful for the support I've had in getting there. I, I think it's possible to be uh, optimistic and cynical. Yes. Uh, or, yeah. you know, <laughs> good nature, good faith and, and cynical. Because it, it's kind of like a, I sort of define it like cynicism is like a mode of analysis. It's a lens. And um, I, I think what happens is a lot of people mistake their cynicism for wisdom. So just because you can second guess someone's motives, someone's right. agenda, yeah. doesn't mean like, you know, this politician who's coming to your door is just trying to get your vote and they will absolutely like betray you in some way. 
you're cynical and you realize like this is a this is a thing. Um, politicians do want votes, and they have often not delivered or followed through on things that they stated they would do uh, to solve the problems that you're facing or experiencing. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be for all cases. And so it's like just you, you got to kind of temper uh, your own cynicism and, and lens with that. But um, yeah, the, I mean, there's kind of like a vicious paradox, isn't there, to becoming burnt out because politicians are going to go to the people that vote. And so if you're becoming burnt out and you're less like whatever passion you brought into it and now you're burnt out and you become jaded and cynical and you leave politics um, or, or stop becoming engaged, politicians are just going to go on to the next one and they're right. going to find the people that do vote. Um, can you maybe speak to a bit of that? Like, do, do you, do, have you found that paradox, I guess? I, I'm describing it like that. could be a vicious cycle. Certainly, um, politics kind of doesn't wait <laughs> for anyone. Um, and, you know, and it's, it is the, it's the kind of 24 hour news cycle and things move quickly. Uh, and if you choose to kind of step out of that, um, you're going to have less influence. But I think what I, you know, what I've also recognized is I'm, I've been very like personally interested in a career where that's, that's thoughtful and where I'm hopefully bringing evidence, really ev an evidence-based approach to my work. And so as a result, you need time to think, you need time to recover, you need time to engage in different ways. So, so that's not a, a negative kind of stepping out of the system. I think sometimes a pause and then re-engaging can be positive, but certainly there's, there's a, you know, and in my experience, um, when you re-engage, there's usually a space there's a space for thoughtful dialogue. So, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, kind of checking out, if you check out from politi political engagement more generally and don't check back in um, and don't re-engage, then certainly politicians aren't. Have you seen apathy as being useful for some people or interests more than others? Well, it's definitely useful for the folks who uh, are in power. Um, <laughs> You know, I think sometimes it's easy to, you know, if you're, if folks aren't paying attention, it's easier to, to kind of sneak some things through or, or not have a um, meaningful debate. So I think, I mean, I think the reality is that, um, yeah, it's useful for those in power. Yeah. Yeah. Like the politicians will go to the people that show up. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many different sayings that I think run counter to one another about democracy. Like, you know, Winston Churchill had the two that the best argument against democracy is a five minute conversation with the average voter. And he also says that it's the worst form of government than all other ones that have been tried. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think it's also like, you know, democracy goes to those who show up. It runs counter to, well, if voting actually made a difference, they would make it illegal. Right. And it's like, okay, well, we got to get comfortable with paradox at a certain point, yeah. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what role do you think like distractions have on our democracy and citizens? Like, I guess I would, I would describe it as like, we know we have definitions that are anti-definitions, uh, independent, it means something that is not dependent. Um, nonfiction means something that is, uh, you know, not fiction. Um, and it's the same thing with like distraction here. We're being, we're being moved away. We're being deviated from uh, attraction, some movement, some inertia, something that matters, something significant. And so distraction and, and the point of amusing ourselves to death is like, we have so much entertainment, so many options for distraction, for being able to tune out yeah. in, in a good way. We're not being controlled 
you know, Orwellian-like, um, except in some cases, we're being controlled in a Huxleyan manner, which is we're, we're being given so much pleasure from all these different stimuli points that now we don't have time for the important things. And I think engagement is one of those important things. Mm -hmm. And learning about how politics works and doesn't work is an important thing. Um, but it, it kind of feeds into that, I suppose, apathy, um, because we just have so many options for how we spend our time. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would perhaps challenge that argument a little bit um, and, and, and offer a paradox, you know, or the reality that I think we're- I'm comfortable with them, in, yeah. Right, which is that I think we're also, it's the cult of productivity, right? Like that's another, you know, that's another side of things. Like I, you know, I certainly don't know a lot of people. Um, well, I mean, the pandemic is, is, you know, a unique scenario, but generally speaking, um, I don't know a lot of people who have like an excess of leisure time. <laughs> I think most people I know are like working really hard and working too much likely. Um, and that would be, you know, my concern. So um, more so than being distracted by, by being amused, I would be, I would say being distracted by um, trying to make meet one's basic needs. Um, you know, and I think, I think, again, that's what contributes more to apathy and disengagement is the sense that you just cannot keep your head above water. Um, you know, and that's whether that's, um, you know, Generation Z, young people today who are looking to want to buy a home, right, where past generations could, could buy a home. <laughs> um, and it's just looking totally out of reach, even for young people uh, who are in, you know, middle-class young people, right? Or whether it's um, young, young people from um, backgrounds where, you know, racism um, is something that they're dealing with every day, right? Like that's hard work. That's emotional labor that is being asked of, 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 those, of those young people. So I think I would say that um, there is a precariousness uh, there's a sense of instability um, and there's a sense of just not being able to quite make it um, and make ends meet that is, is leading to disengagement more so than, than distraction um, at this particular moment. I stand perfectly corrected. Thank you. Um, <laughs> no, I think it's a paradox though, because I think both are true. I, I say that as a, a uh, someone with a deep love of bad reality television, you know, I understand. <laughs> I also, so I think both are true, but I think they both need to be equally held. It's, uh, well, yeah, and, and maybe to continue the Orwellian Huxleyan thing that uh, amusing ourselves to death does, it's like we, we, we are so crushed by the amount of work we have to do running to make ends meet. Just the needs of survival is, is so much mental labor and, and it's yeah. exhausting. Um, that when we do have that spare time, what are we yeah. going to spend it on? Something that like is a whole other, you know, education need or something that we have to, yeah. it's just more, yeah, shit. Like it's, it's just more shit to-, to Well, you're so exhausted, it. right? You yeah. know, I mean, that's when, that's when I watch reality TV when I can't handle, you know, anything. I've, I've yeah. only just started coming back to like trying to watch reality television. My thing is like comedy and podcasts and, and uh, I'll, I'll listen to that in spare time. Uh, but- one of them was talking about, or a couple of them actually was talking about um, love on the spectrum. Oh, and yes, I don't know. Yeah. Oh God. It's so adorable. I, <laughs> I love it so much. I feel recharged. I have so much secondhand, like 
embarrassment and, and shame though when something is yeah. going wrong and it's just kind of played up that way nice, but yeah nice. no it, it's a it's a good one have your experiences informed your work at the university of waterloo working with and advocating for young people yeah so i mean i you know started off as a young leader um, and then founded apathy is boring and worked for 10 years in youth mobilization um, and then you know as i wrapped up apathy is boring i um you know, as I mentioned, it was quite burnt out, but really still felt like there was work that needed to be done when it came to meaningfully supporting young leaders, but also recognizing at that point that I was no longer in the demographic of, of a young person myself. I was trying to figure out, you know, how best to kind of use my talents and abilities. So there was a couple of different things that happened that led me to the University of Waterloo. One is that um, my colleague, Dr. Amelia Clark, who's a tenured professor and associate dean at the University of Waterloo, she actually was my mentor when I was 14 and she was 21 and we were both working in the environmental uh, movement. Um, and so she and I had started doing research together, understanding where, in what context are young leaders the most impactful. So that was certainly one thing. And then the other thing was I was part of a program um, called the Graduate Diploma in Social Innovation that was led uh, by Francis Wesley. Um, and Francis Wesley wrote the book called Getting to Maybe, which is all about recognizing um, that social innovation is not about getting to yes. You never fully solve a problem. It's about just trying stuff and kind of getting to, getting to maybe. And I, you know, and I really, you know, I think my 30s um, were really about recognizing futility, that sometimes you can't fix problems and kind of rec recognizing the messiness of life um, and the complexity of life. Um, and so, you know, the work that I do at the University of Waterloo um, is about trying to create the evidence base that is missing when it comes to youth engagement. You know, when we talk about young people and young leaders, it's like, oh, isn't that lovely? Isn't that cute? You know, it, oh, isn't that really nice? Like, let's pat Greta Thunberg on the head and say, oh, isn't that lovely? You know, it's not really taking those young people seriously. And uh, one of the things that I think leads to taking people seriously is having the evidence to back up that what they're doing, you know, really matters and is really having an impact. So, so yeah, so this work is, is you know, evidence-based, which maybe is just my attempt to kind of find some sense of stability in an unstable world, um, but it's also about uh, digging deeper, you know, and I, I think, um, yeah, I'm really inspired by that. I, I did have a, yeah, a question about like, you know, why is it that certain young people like Greta Thunberg is so captivating and, and uh, I mean, you kind of speak to it, but is there more that you have thoughts on, on that? Like, why is it either this particular teenager or why yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's, there's a palatability, and I think this has been discussed in the media about how, you know, she's a, a white young woman from a European country. So it makes it sometimes more palatable. Um, certain kinds of young people are more acceptable and palatable than other kinds of young people. Um, in our research work, though, um, we've also looked at the reality that we kind of have an extreme in terms of how we view young people. We either see them as 
um, dangerous or we put them on a pedestal, right? And so we all want to be young. We all, you know, like want to want to use the latest moisturizer or whatever it is to try to look younger, right? So we have, we kind of have this weird paradox when it comes to young people that they're going to save us and that we all idealize certain parts of being young, but then on the other side, we see them as this unknown and, the, and this kind of sort of this dangerous cohort. And so our understandings of young people, and certainly this is one of the conclusions that I've come to in my work, is incredibly confused. And we really don't know. Like, I mean, at the same time that Greta Thunberg is, is being, you know, um, kind of put on this pedestal. She's also being torn down and it's like, what does she know? And, you know, so, so the reality is, yeah, we're just very, very confused. And I don't think either of those things, either of those sides um, of the spectrum are necessarily useful. What's useful is saying, okay, what is the real abilities of this young person and how can we value those? Um, you know, rather than, than kind of making them into a saint or, or assuming they have not, nothing good to offer. What do you think is in need of reform and like what kinds of changes would you want to see implemented in our education system when it comes to governance and, and politics and, and engagement? Sure. So I really think we need to shift, and you alluded to this before, from an education system that's based on stuffing information um, that's very quickly outdated often into young people's heads um, and shifting to an education system that's built around, you know, supporting young people in learning, but then supporting them in meaningfully contributing to their communities. Um, so our research is really based in neuroscience and developmental psychology and understanding that from 15 to 25 young people's brains are wired for innovation and they're really the innovation engine of our, our communities and our society. So that's when um, we, our brains are most wired to come up with bold solutions to complex problems. And from 15 to 25, most young people are in school. Um, and so I, re I really think, A, that we need to be reintegrating young people into the economy earlier, um, but we also need to be shifting how we understand education um, writ large so that it's really about meaningful contribution. Yeah, absolutely agree. Uh, I, I think what the pandemic has done is, it, is it's underscored the extent to which we, we treat education and schooling like it's a glorified babysitter like we're, we're putting kids there like uh, donald trump ran on uh basically improving gdp numbers by opening schools so the parents can go back to work which would pump up those numbers for when he ran into the election and it's like it i don't know like we should know a little bit more about that um so public education then would you say like in its current form is not tenable for you know the the goals that you've just set out I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done if I'm going to be diplomatic about it. Um, and, um, and I think the best place to start is with youth voice. You know, we need to give young people a back agency when it comes to how they are educated. Um, I, uh, I'm on the advisory council of an organization called People for Education that looks at public education. And, uh, and I, I often sound like a broken record, which is the best thing we can do is give young people agency uh, in, in the context of their education. What do you think can be done to increase like process and policy literacy 
specifically for, for young people? Process and policy literacy. My goodness, I'm like falling asleep just hearing those words. <laughs> it sounds horribly boring, right? I don't think we necessarily need process. And like, I, I think it's about experience, right? Like, so, so what's the best way young people learn? Well, how did I learn? I learned by being on uh, a youth advisory council. I was on the the youth roundtable for the environment. I advised five different ministers of the environment um, when I was in my late teens. Went to the UN, I was an official Canadian delegate at the Commission for Sustainable Development. Um, you know, like that's where I learned how policy works, um, you know, and have used that in my career for the last 20 years, right? So I would say not in school, um, but join a youth advisory council, start talking to decision makers. Um, and the more opportunity we can give young people, uh, whether it's on school boards, um, you know, wherever, wherever it can be, where we're putting young people uh, together with decision makers, that's how they're going to learn. Do you think we're in more perilous straits going into the 2020s uh, than ever before? Um, no. Um, I, think, I think all of us as humans like to pretend that the moment we're living in is the most difficult and precarious and crazy. Um, but I don't think this is, I think we've seen all of these things before. Um, and I just hope that the pandemic, uh, is a wake up call, you know, and it shakes us out of our, our, um, you know, sense that things are good enough. What do you think is going to write the ship of democracy? Like, what do you think is going to save democracy? So I'm really, you got one minute, you got one, <laughs> <laughs> one minute to save democracy. No problem. Uh, I really believe in democratic innovation, not de democratic reform, um, which is, is contrary to a lot of my peers. Um, but I really think that we need to innovate all par parts of democracy and democracy is not something that should be static. Um, it should be something that continues to evolve and continues to change and grow. Um, and and I, think, I think that's the only way to improve democracy. So, so it's not just about how we count votes. It's about all the different elements um, of the electoral process, but also of citizen engagement. So I think we should be trying new things all the time um, that hold our politicians to account and that support citizens in engaging. I love that. Uh, okay, so if democracy fails, and we fall into some kind of post-apocalyptic scenario, which one would you prefer? Like zombies, would you like the 100? I don't, I don't even know if there's, there's so many of them. Which post-apocalyptic scenario? Scenario would I prefer? I mean, I've always been partial to like, you know, aliens descending and taking over or something. I don't know, I find aliens quite fascinating. So is that post-apocalyptic enough that we, you know, earth is chaos and the aliens come in and, you know, take over? Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're waiting for us to figure it out here before they start engaging us on a galactic <laughs> level, or so I'm told. Oh, yeah, um, or maybe yeah. they're just waiting for everything to fall apart, like, super drastically, so, like, I don't know. There's some resource on this planet, they're just like, they don't know about yeah. it yet, let them wipe each other out, then we go in and scoop it up. Exactly, <laughs> and then us, I'm yeah. hoping to be taken away by the aliens as well, in that yeah. scenario, yeah. so, right, saved. It's part of the, the small cohort of the human race that will be like, eh, these people are okay, we'll take them with us. <laughs> Some of us are there. Um, 
wrapping up, is there anything else you'd like to mention or, or do you have any projects that you're working on or? So um, our work right now is just, is really, we're doing more and more work around uh, youth unemployment. So really understanding um, how young people are valued by their employers and whether they are given opportunities to, to make meaningful change and having a meaningful impact in the workplace. So I'm really excited about that work. And also just generally um, about understanding uh, the impact that young people are having on, on their communities. So again, really measuring what do we know about the kind of impact that young people um, you know, are having on their communities and, and how can we measure that? So I, I love, that, love that work where there seems to be a lot of momentum for what we're doing. Um, trying, we're trying to both make sure it's academically rigorous, but also accessible to practitioners. So we have a bunch of new infographics on our website and are sharing our work pretty broadly. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I get to talk to all sorts of different audiences uh, about intergenerational collaboration. I get to work with young people every day um, and, and hopefully contribute some research that's, that's gonna make things easier and help the next generation of young people become more impactful. So I'm putting my trust in, uh, in young people being the ones who, who have those bold ideas and all we need to do is, is uh, support them. Love it. Thank you so much for speaking with me. It was very informative. Thank you for having me.